This special New Hampshire Business Review presidential primary podcast is sponsored by Bernstein Schur. We're attorneys, but we're people first. I'm Mike Cody, editor of New Hampshire Business Review. We're here with presidential candidate and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, and we're taking questions with Ernesto Burden, our publisher, and our producer, Amanda Andrews. Governor Burgum, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Mike. We want to look at uh, your three pillars that you're focusing on your campaign, uh, the economy and energy and national security. Uh, here in New Hampshire, we want to know what strategies you'll be implementing on a national scale that might benefit specifically businesses here. Well, first of all, just want to say uh, thanks uh, for having me on. Congratulations to all the success. Great to be with all three of you. But. <clears throat> Well, economy, energy, national security, these things are all three interrelated. And of course, right now our economy is crawling when it should be sprinting, uh, interest rates at uh, record highs, uh, home ownership, the American dream getting out of reach for a lot of people with these high interest rates, inflation choking every American family, and specifically around food and energy. Uh, we're paying too much too much for gas to pump, too much for the electricity and the fuel to heat your homes, especially here in New Hampshire. And we're uh, certainly uh, paying too much for food, but of course food prices are up because energy prices are up because energy prices drive the price of fertilizer up, it drives the price of fuel up for farmers. So we've got a set of very inflationary policies the Biden administration has put in. The Inflation you know, Reduction Act is actually the Inflation Creation Act. You can't jam trillions of dollars of spending towards ideological approaches and expect not to have inflation because even with high interest rates, you could choke out private investment and you could stop private uh, building and housing, for example, but the states that have been, like like all the states, have received you know, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars from the federal government for the Infrastructure Act, they're going to keep on building roads. They, you know, If you can't build 100 miles of road because of 30% inflation, you build a 70, 70 miles of road. So it is, the inflation uh, was manufactured completely by policy, wasn't necessary. And, and then uh, the energy policy that we have in this country, which is really also <clears throat> highly inflationary because we're trying to kill the U.S. energy industry and trying to kill it again for ideological reasons. There's a belief that somehow that if we can go to all electric vehicles, kill the U.S. energy industry, that somehow we're going to save the environment. If you do that and you buy every battery from China and China's controlling 85 percent of the rare earth minerals, they're the world's largest polluter the country of China. They're also the world's largest importer of oil, over 10 million barrels of oil a day. And the U.S. is the one nation that's done the most in terms of CO2 carbon reduction. And we can continue to drive carbon down. North Dakota, we have, we've set a goal of being carbon neutral by 2030. And we're not doing with not one new mandate, not one new regulation. It's all through innovation. It's innovation, not regulation, which has solved every problem that's ever faced our nation. And it's how we win the Cold War within with China, because you win a Cold War by having a strong economy. And instead of choking your economy with red tape and regulation, you drive it with innovation. In North Dakota this last year, we passed 51 red tape reduction bills, 51. And it to the end, not that we were running out of ideas, we started crowdsourcing them from the public. What can we do to get rid of government, to get government out of the lives of individuals, out of small businesses, and how do we get the economy really rolling? And then national security ties into this because energy security and food security, the two things that are that you know, the average family paying $700 more per month right now across the country, that's $8,400 a year just for the basic goods since Biden took office. 
uh, with this inflation you know choking them if if you want to have food security and energy security we have the possibility to do that in the united states but national security starts with border security and we've got essentially an open border and i'm happy to go more in depth i've been down there multiple times with the north dakota national guard has two deployments down there as we speak <clears throat> one of them is uh leading a night flight, night vision helicopter uh, operations from San Diego to the Gulf Coast, Coast with Lakota helicopters. And they're not trying to stop you know, a starving family from Venezuela. And by the way, seven and a half million people have fled that corrupt country, a country that this Biden administration was asking to produce more energy at the same time they were shutting energy down here. But it's not that. They're trying to stop the transnational criminal organizations that are, you know, multi-billion dollar, well-financed, well-funded organizations that are, you know, doing things like driving, you know, the drugs into our country where we've had, you know, we've lost five Vietnams worth of of mass casualties since Biden took office uh, to overdoses in this country, which is a tragedy. Every single one of them, that's an unthinkable statistic. But when you're talking about over 250,000 deaths in the last two and, two and a half years and 70% of those from fentanyl poisonings, it's not really an overdose. It's, you know, fentanyl kill you first time you ever try something. So it is a, <clears throat> a there's no real appropriate, you know, dose uh, for for fentanyl in this in this in that sense. So national security, uh, we're in, so we're in a cyber war with China every day with Russia, North Korea. I know this because I see everything what's happening, where we're being attacked at the state level, at the city level, at the tribal level, at the university level, at the K-12 level. I mean, there's just full-on state-sponsored attacks going all the time, every day, in every state, and <clears throat> that's not really acknowledged. The border, the open border, with the you know, we've got over six million people who have been processed in the country in the last two and a half years. Most least covered story in America right now. And and then we've got, uh, you know, four Biden officials that have been over to see China in the last, this summer, and none of them have talked about using energy as the as a leverage in the negotiation. And we have an opportunity as the, to be not just energy independent, but energy dominant. We could be controlling the discussion in our Cold War with, with China because of our energy position. So I just sum it all up is we're going 180 degrees the wrong direction on economy, energy, and national security. And when I'm your president, we're going to be going the opposite direction on all that. Governor, there's a lot to unpack in that. I'm Ernesto Burden. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I, one of the things you said early on in that um, summary of those three pillars really hits home here, so to speak, bad pun. Uh, we're going through a housing crisis here in New Hampshire and um, from affordability, uh, just not enough inventory and home ownership was something you mentioned right in the beginning. What do we do about that? What do we do about that as a nation? Um, what do we do about that here in New Hampshire? What's your observation? Well. If the government was playing less of a role in driving where capital is being expended in the market, because uh, they're they're the they're, it's so gigantic. I mean, when you're talking about the trillions and trillions of dollars that are being jammed towards you know specific industries or towards specific within an industry, it's not just towards automobiles; it's towards electric, you know, automobiles. I, the affordability, quality, accessibility issue for housing, like I, I gave the example on the highways. But you can keep raising interest rates and you'll stop every new home construction in this country. We're getting close in some states where there's no new home construction. We have a shortage of housing. The private sector's not building housing. Why aren't they building housing? Not single family homes and not multifamily. Why not? Because the interest rates are too high, it doesn't pencil out. 
But when the federal government or a state gets a bunch of money shoved at them to do a water project or do a road project, uh, they're going to keep on building, even if it doesn't pencil out. You just build less of it, but you're still sucking up, in the case of a road, the concrete, the rebar, the labor to do that. We have a water project in North Dakota that didn't come back at 30% higher. It came back at 100% higher. And I'm like, how is that possible? Come on, the DOT is getting it done for 30% higher. And they said, well, under the new Biden rules, we have to buy... We can't buy a precision German pump, you know, for this water processing facility. They're an ally of ours. We can't buy that. We've got to buy American. I said, well, okay, we'll buy American. Oh, well, nobody in America manufactures that pump that we need to move water across. And they, well, they, what's the wait time? It's four years. Well, then either we're not building it, and then when we build it, it costs, we build it four years later, and it costs 100% more. Meanwhile, nobody's building housing. But we've still got inflation. So we could actually have stagflation caused by this fed, the federal spending where we would end up with, with high costs for building supplies, that, you know, wood, concrete, rebar, labor, all that goes up because the, everybody's trying to get through the deadlines to get your money spent and spend it the way the government is telling you you have to do it, you've got to use unions, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. All of this is costing Americans dearly and, and it doesn't solve the problem. So we have to get back to where the market can help uh, solve that because I'll tell you I'm sure they're going to say oh we got to fix the problem oh we'll put more money into housing now we'll start subsidizing certain types of housing but the housing is going to have to be built with these kinds of rules it'll keep driving the cost up you can't solve these problems of supply and demand with with government intervention you actually make it worse and exhibit A is higher education and exhibit B is healthcare. These are the two two industries that since the year 2000 have received the most amount of federal help and they're the two things that consistently have had the highest inflation in our country the last 23 years or those two. And the quality of higher education didn't necessarily go up. The quality of healthcare, we just said, oh, you've got to do certain things in healthcare and you've got to use these software packages and you have, everyone's got to have meaningful use of electronic health records, which I know as a tech guy, I spent 30 years in software. I saw the healthcare industry of consume one trillion dollars of technology and at the end of that decade that started with with the mandated use of electronic health records 10 years later one trillion dollars of investment only industry in the history of mankind that's absorbed one trillion dollars of technology and at the end of the day was less productive doctors were seeing fewer patients per day in america at the end of that decade than they were at the beginning that didn't this hap didn't happen in any other industry every other industry got more productive another issue particularly new hampshire governor before the pandemic, the unemployment rate in New Hampshire for about five years was under 3%. We had a little blip during the pandemic. It maybe hit like 18% for a short time. For a good long while now, it's been about 2%. How do you deal with workforce issues in this country where we just, it seems like workers have gone away or we've had older people leave the workforce. We've had a lot, and again, this is even before the pandemic, we've had issues with you know, not enough immigration perhaps. How do, you, how do we fix that? Well, demographically, we've got a challenge. We've got more baby boomers retiring uh, than we've got new workforce entering. And so, you know, politicians can claim that their policies are so great because they're helping get unemployment uh, down. I mean, we're getting, you know, the unemployment rates down. But it's just a structural demographic issue we have. And we're going to have chronic low employment for the, perhaps the next decade. That's going to also drive inflationary pressures up because there's going to be labor shortage. So you have to solve that two ways. You have to solve it by with increases in productivity, which is you know making things more productive so there's less demand for labor. And again, using innovation, not regulation, to allow that productivity to occur. And we'll see this happen in a number of industries where they'll become more productive. And and you you know you can see it whether it's your 
you know, checking yourself in at the airport at a self-serve or, you know, at a kiosk at a McDonald's. I mean, you can eliminate uh, some positions through productivity uh, that way. We'll see it in manufacturing. Uh, we'll still have great high paying jobs, but that's one piece. But the other piece is on the supply side. And we have to get some of the people off the bench and back into the workforce. And the big, one of the biggest ways to do that is to solve one of the childcare problems because we've got you know, so many families across America that aren't working because childcare is unaffordable. And when they get to, when they have their second kid, they're like, well, somebody's got to stay home because we can't afford 12 or $13,000 a year. In North Dakota this year, we passed the most comprehensive childcare program ever supporting a you know those largely small businesses largely women-owned businesses and those families because we, we were even in our small state we said wow we've got a you know <clears throat> 55,000 kids that are under age five and most of their parents are you know college educated sometimes both of them so we paid for those North Dakota kids to go through k-12 education which we support hugely in north dakota then they probably went to a north dakota university which we supported then they all went and got jobs but then we we had all that infrastructure that's workforce infrastructure because we're getting great education leads to great workforce we do that and then they get into the workforce and then somebody's got to stay home and and so that was something we just said affordability accessibility quality let's try to approach it through a broad-based thing and and we're going to get people off the bench north dakota's got the highest workforce participation of any state in the nation again a couple weeks ago named the hardest working state in the nation again part of that is because we've systematically looked at the workforce issue and when we went in our legislature this year we said the, the number one issue in the thing was it wasn't like a hundred things you read about in the press that those are the top issue no we said our number one issue is actually workforce that's the thing was holding our economy back we went after it comprehensively child care was a piece of that and and then here we go our economy sprinting at the highest gdp of any republican-led state in the nation and we're, we're on track to have the highest in the country governor um spoke about innovation and productivity and this year in particular I think it's hard to, to say those two words and not think about artificial intelligence and the implications of that um, on workforce um, what's your take well I think this is a though well, I mean I've spent 30 years in software and I know that software is the greatest uh, invention in the history of mankind in terms of expanding human capability and now we've got uh, the potential of incredible products and they're free. I mean, we, we got done with a legislative session this year and we got all of the cabinet agencies together and we're, we, we cut 1.7 billion out of state government, 27% of the budget, uh, my first four months in office and the trains all still you know, left on time. And part of that we're saying we've got to improve the productivity of the workers in government. We've got to treat the citizens, the taxpayers, like customers and the way you treat a customer when I was in the tech business for 30 years everything we had to do the next day the product had to be cheaper faster easier to use there was no tariffs there was no protectionism no one was going to come and save our industry no one was going to subsidize what we're doing it was just raw competition for 30 years just flat out we've got to be better all the time and bringing that kind of attitude to government you know it, it turns out that you know, 10 to 20 percent of every government job is some mind, you know, mindless, soul-sucking work that they don't want to do themselves. They went into government because they likely care about wanting to make a difference in people's lives. Good people go to work for government. They're not bad people, but they've got bad, bad job design, and they've got no competition that forces these agencies to get rid of the wasted work. They got some 
some you know regulation or rule or law that got passed 30 years ago and they've got to create a report that nobody reads and they hate doing it so we've worked we're working on trying to eliminate strategically instead of before the budget process we do a strategic planning process what are we going to stop doing that nobody cares about as part of the way we cut out that continually cutting out that work but ai when we got done with the legislative session this year of course we had some agencies that said wow we didn't get everything we hoped for we didn't get all the new ftes we were asking for so what we do we had a two-day offsite at the offsite we, we the whole thing was about ai it was about ai look there's a free tool it speaks 26 languages it can code you know it can solve any math problem you throw in front of it and no it's not perfect yet but it's getting order of magnitude better like every six months i mean it's on a growth rate faster than being and, and it's like imagine if you will that every state employee had an empty chair next to him and in that chair was someone who could do be an assistant for free like an intern that could draft do a first draft of their reports you know translated into any languages if necessary and if they needed to do some coding work could code for them and let's like, just pretend that everybody's got a free assistant what would we do differently and it's people's heads explode because they're like wow I've, you know I, you know, I wanted to hire five more FTEs or you know, 10 more of this or 10 more of that. I mean, the amount of productivity increase that we can get to get every job to be more productive with AI is an, it's an, a tool like we've never had, but it's also a weapon. And it's a weapon that if we don't figure out how to use it well, other countries will use it against us. But we have an opportunity in the United States to lead, and we have an opportunity to use it in, in government to make people more productive. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Bernstein Schur, one of Northern New England's largest law firms. Located in Manchester's historic Jefferson Mill building on the Merrimack River since 2003, Bernstein Schur's New Hampshire team offers comprehensive, full-service, expert counsel to a wide variety of clients in New Hampshire. Bernstein Schur, here for you. Do you see any of the, besides its uh, potential for weaponization, do you see any other dangers? I mean, there are, there are a lot of people who I think are concerned that um, it's moving too fast, that it should be regulated. What, what's your take on that? My sense is that if there's a, uh, something online that says we ought to stop R&D around AI, you know, in the U.S. because we're going too fast, it's probably a bot from China or Russia. I mean, they, the, this, is, this is like a nuclear arms race. Only we're ahead. We're ahead, and the United States is leading. And we should put the put the pedal down and go as fast as we can to figure out how to be maintain our leadership. Because that for us, Mike asked the question: What are we doing about jobs? Well, we're short. We need more productivity. AI can improve economy. If you're China, who we're basically in a war with, it's a cyber war and a cold war. But it could become a hot war. We're in a war. If they become more productive. And they've got right now they've got you know 22 percent unemployment among 18 to 25 year olds and they've got you know 10 million college graduates that don't have jobs and they have a lot of people that want to upgrade their jobs they can't become more productive they're still like why would you why would you buy a skid steer loader when you can have 100 people dig a trench with a shovel right they don't want to have the productivity increases we have a huge opportunity in our country to get more productive they don't have this they've got a very different demographic challenge and so ai is a much better strategic advantage for us it's actually a strategic disadvantage for china governor Berger, <clears throat> when you mentioned mindless soul-sucking work it reminded me of a conversation <laughs> we had before we started the podcast we were in the wombat mill building and uh, there used to be a textile processing plant here for, for many years we exported that kind of work over to places like asia so when we talk about 
united against united against China and Putin. It's easy to see with Putin and, and what's going on in Ukraine. With China, it's so much more complex because our economy is so intertwined. I mean, if I took away the things that you know are, are made in China, I couldn't. I'd have to throw in my iPhone. Uh, probably most of what I'm wearing right now, or at least some of it. How do we how do we get past that? Well, you're absolutely right, Mike, because you know, winning the Cold War with Russia in the 1980s does, what Ronald Reagan did, does require us to have strong deterrence. You know, I mean, we've got to have strong military deterrence, and we've also got to have a strong economy. That's how we win that. So we need to have a strong economy. But when we were doing that, Russia's economy in the 1980s was very small, and they weren't intertwined. Now we've got the number one economy in the world, the U.S., number two, China, and they are very intertwined. But as I said at the outset, one of the ways that we win that, one of the things that we have that they don't have is energy. We've got energy. They are desperate. The reason why did they, why does China now have the world's largest navy? They built the world's largest navy because they got to protect the sea lanes to get all that energy coming in. The 10 million barrels of oil a day got to be offloaded. They also have to protect the sea lanes for food. They don't grow enough food to feed the 1.3, 1.4 billion people. So they're they're doing that, and they know that the way we beat Japan in World War II. My dad was a World War II Navy vet. Yes, we fought island island. Yes. Uh, you know, folks like my dad, an officer on a destroyer, you know, that were 151 of them at Okinawa, 129 hit by kamikazes, and half the MIAs in American history are U.S. World War II Navy sailors. So it's sort of by the grace of God that I'm even sitting here. But yes, we did that. But, you know, at the end of the day, why we won? We won because their submarines sank every oil tanker going to Japan. And at the very end, they had no oil left. And even their biggest battleships went out for one last hurrah, knowing that they didn't have enough oil to get back on the ship. I mean, they did kamikaze missions with the two world's largest battleships in the world. They were like, we're not going to let these, we're not going to end the war with these sitting in the harbor. But they'd been sitting there for six months. So China understands history. They've got a long view. That's why they're building this big navy that they're building. But we have we have a card to play and we're not playing it because we're trying to, we're trying to shut down the U.S. energy industry. And we just run our salt again last week. You can't transport LNG by rail. That was an executive order. Oh, we're going to do, a, you know, new EIS on pipelines that have been operating safely for the last five years. Oh, we're going to take an area that's the size of Indiana in Alaska and say you can't drill in there. And it, because it's a wildlife refuge, it was always called the U.S. Navy Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's what it is. And the, in, in, in the way we do drilling in the U.S., you could be drilling on like a, a four-acre pad you know, and, and be producing enormous amounts of energy without disrupting any wildlife. Why do I say they do that? Because that's what we do in North Dakota. You know, we've got the ability the ability to tap off of very small areas with very little, way less land disturbance than you get from putting up solar panels or wind. I mean, we're in all of the above. We've got everything in North Dakota, but uh, every one of these energy sources has got drawbacks uh, to them. Uh, but if you're getting a solar panel or a battery in the United States, it's you know, and it's coming from China, it's being made by a plant in China powered by coal because China's opening up a coal plant about every two weeks. They will open more than we can shut down in ours. And in North Dakota, we're decarbonizing baseload coal. We can take lignite coal. Uh, it's you know low sulfur coal. We've got the ability to grab the CO2 off it, store it safely underground, and, and have baseload. I mean, as opposed to moving towards this brownout blackout of destabilized grid that we're doing with all these policies. So you came out of nowhere pretty much with no political experience and won the governorship in North Dakota. Um, how are you going to do that to become president when you're fairly, you know, an unknown quantity and you've got a, you've got a long shot bid? What are you going to do? 
Well, we're spending a lot of time in Iowa, New Hampshire, and <clears throat> we're uh, getting to know people on the ground. Uh, we've got one uh, big advantage. We have one disadvantage is we're unknown. We have a, another advantage, which is when people meet us, they're like, wow, we've been sitting around saying, hey, how come we don't have somebody normal? You know, I hear that all the time from voters in New Hampshire. We want someone normal. We want someone with common sense. We want a regular, you know, person, you know, to run for office. We want someone who's, you know, like I did growing up. Every job I had on the farm, the ranch, the grain elevator, even work as a chimney sweep to pay my way through college, I took a shower at the end of the day. And then when my dad died when I was a freshman in high school, my mom went back to work. So you've got, you know, a widow with three kids that's trying to make the mortgage and make, you know, put food on the table. I get what average Americans are going through right now. And they're like, why can't we have one of those people? But somebody who's also worked in the private sector, who understands how technology is changing every job, every company, every industry. But, oh, we don't want someone who's never worked in government because that may not work out so well. So how about someone who's got a remarkable record running a state? a state that produces more energy than most OPEC nations and we've got you know 360 mile border with Canada so we understand borders and we've got you know if we seceded from the nation we'd probably be the third largest nuclear power in the world because we got you know 150 Minuteman missiles up there I mean so we understand economy energy and nas national defense we understand those things and, and then when people go oh well you're they meet they meet me and they're like wow this we've been talking about someone like you so we just got to get out there in places you know small towns small venues meet people in iowa new hampshire and we know when we do the more people know us then our numbers are going up so that's that's been our strategy and we think that that particularly in new hampshire where you know first the nation primary status the people of new hampshire have a really important role to play this year more than ever in trying to really because they have a chance to meet candidates understand who they are what they're about and and drive that forward that's a super important role and in the uh, it's not these clubhouse rules you know being set by the rnc or a cable channel that says oh you got to have a national poll rating to be part of the debate that's never been part of the the story before and if it was we you know we'd have been you'd be knocking out candidates that would never never you know should have been on the ballot in new hampshire for people to consider but we're going to be on the ballot in january regardless we'll be here uh looking forward grateful for everybody we've met in new hampshire and grateful for the opportunity to get around the state and talk to people about these issues that affect everybody governor we probably have time for just a couple more questions i know you have a hard stop at 10. um following up on the the mike's last question um, and the topic of entrepreneurship. You said on your website of the people who donated to your campaign, visited your site, and returned again, um, that, that they're back because they're saying we could use an entrepreneur in the White House. And that just got me thinking about the, the, all the press that, that the new book about Elon Musk is getting, right? And he's one of our most famous entrepreneurs, as is Steve Jobs. And yet, they're not necessarily unifying figures um, or paragons of diplomacy. Um, how do you see the role of the president and the role of entrepreneur um, uh, merging, and, and how or, or how does the how does your your entrepreneurial background inform the way that you would lead a whole country? Well, I think the place to start is <clears throat> where from the very beginning, which is you know I, I saw. Uh, you know, computer when I was in my mid-20s and I said this is going to change the world. It was an Apple II computer with VisiCalc and I'm like, wow, that's that's changing everything. And I literally had a small amount of farm ground that I had got from my dad when he passed away and I literally bet the farm. I, bet, I took a mortgage out on the farm, which you never do. That became the seed capital for Great Plains Software. 
and Great Plains Software. We started, there was 10 of us uh, at the very beginning. That thing grew to uh, 2,000 team members. We had you know 1,200 in Fargo, 400 rest of North America, including here in Manchester. Uh, we had uh, another 400 rest of the world. We had customers in 132 countries. And it was, you know, from kids from 220 small towns across the Midwest that, that came there. A lot of them with, you know, farm backgrounds or that were, knew how to work. And like me, probably grew up in a town that didn't have a computer and I didn't have paved streets. I mean, the gravel roads and the gravel streets in the town I grew up in. So it's a, that story informs a lot because we were also selling a product which was sold to small businesses. So I spent, you know, my entire career, you know, three decades worth working with small businesses that were, you know, struggling to figure out, you know, how they could improve their improve their success. And that's the core of the economy. Yeah, we've got these, you know, you know, billion. There's the occasional billionaire, you know, entrepreneur that's in the press that writes the book and does whatever. But there's you know, tens of millions of people getting up today in America that with their dream and chasing their dream and starting their business and they're creating jobs. They're the job creators in this country. We've got to make sure that small businesses and entrepreneurs, you know, have the ability to internet to get to get the government off their back, get red tape off their back. Those are the people that I'm really focused on because they're the ones that are really driving. It's it's that you know they're, they're they may not be in the news every day, uh, but they should be because they're the heroes to me. If, if I, just following up on that a little bit more, um, what you know? How do you see uh, that role of the president in general? As it, right now, we're in a very uh, it feels like a divided period. It doesn't seem like a stretch to say that. How? What, what do you do about that? Well, in North Dakota, uh, the way we've led is we've just led like, hey, we've uh, we've got the executive branch has got to be the uniter. Uh, you know, I'll never be a Senator, I'll never run for Senate. I'll never be a congressman of zero interest of putting on a jersey and just lobbing bombs at everybody. And and I think the nation is getting more and more frustrated with the divided nature of of our and the ineffectual results that come from a super divided Congress, where they can't you know agree on anything without the drama, shutdowns. I mean, all these things that everybody goes back and forth and takes sides on. We've actually have to we have to understand you know we're in a proxy war. Right now in Eastern Europe, we're in a cold war with China. There's a discrete set of things the federal government is supposed to do around economy and energy and national security. And the rest of the stuff's gotta be left to the states and the people. And I will, as your president, actually understand what the job description is. The job description of the federal government. The, fe the states, like New Hampshire, the 13 states created the federal government. They delegated certain responsibilities. It's in the 10th Amendment. That's what the federal government's supposed to do. The federal government's not supposed to be in everybody's life all the time on every topic. I mean, let the school board decide, the library board, the city commission, state legislators, or, or the parents. Let the parents decide. You know, maybe the individuals decide. It's like we don't need as much government as we have, so we got to thin that down. And as 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 president, as your president, uh, I'd be you know very focused on trying to talk about what's right about America, not what's wrong. I mean, we talk we call the best of America. I mean, the best. Of, I mean, I've you know met with people here, small startups that are doing amazing work in recovery. The first lady of North Dakota courageously sharing her story that she struggled with addiction for two and a half decades. Now she's in recovery, and we try to meet with these small groups doing amazing work on recovery wherever we go. There's just nonprofits; they've never gotten a federal dime, and they're changing and saving people's lives. This is happening every day in America, where neighbors are helping neighbors, and people that care deeply about their communities are doing. Doing amazing 
stuff. And I saw it here in Manchester yesterday morning at the Arts Fair and the halfway to the halfway to St. Patrick's Day, you know, 5K, 10K. I mean, just great sense of community and people coming together at Glendy, the Greek Fest. I mean, I, you know, so many smiles in people's faces. Everybody's, you know, coming, coming together. We need to have the executive branch be the uniter. You know, Congress can fight, but the executive branch, we say in North Dakota, which is, by the way, the size of all six New England states, uh, so Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, when we have a blizzard, that when we do, which covers that thing, we plow the roads for everybody. We don't plow the roads for the people that voted for us. We plow the roads for independents and Democrats and Republicans. We just take that attitude into everything we do, whether it's education or healthcare. We're working for everybody. And when I'm your president, I'll be working for everybody. And that's what we need. We need right now more than ever to focus on the, the issues that the federal government is supposed to do and then unite the country for everyone else. Last question for you. Tell me about the moment when you realized, I want to run for president. Well, the big decision in our family was the decision to run for governor. It was because it was like, hey, I'm in the private sector. It's like, you know, golden life. I mean, everything uh, after, you know, after Great Plains, and then we were acquired by Microsoft, and then I helped build Microsoft for seven years from 40,000 to 90,000 people, and we had, and I had people working for me in 120 countries in all the largest cities of the world. I mean, I had people working for me that didn't, didn't have the right to vote. People, you know, they couldn't, you know, freedom of speech, you know, no Second Amendment. I mean, you, you, get, you get 120 countries and you see that there's a, how special this country is. So it made a decision to say, hey, I'm going to leave the private sector because we need a business leader that understands our changing economy to lead North Dakota. And I jumped into a race as this long shot. And we won in 2016 and 2020 by over 40 points both times. You don't win by 40 points unless everybody's voting for you. You know, you're 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 hitting it down the center of the fairway, uh, in a way where you can get supported by a broad, broad constituents. They say, look, yeah, he's reducing the size of government. He's following conservative principles. He's you know focused on freedom and liberty. But yeah, he's willing to innovate and actually solve real problems for people. So that's been our formula. And then when we looked at the field that was running this time, and we said, wow, okay. There isn't anybody who's got this depth of private sector experience, certainly not in technology. No one's got a, as good a track record, uh, you know, in terms of what they've been able to accomplish as a, as a governor, you know, and I, I just care deeply about the country. I mean, for sure, and starting with, you know, being grown up by parents from the greatest, greatest generation. I mean, they, they deferred you know, having kids for over a decade after World War II because they were waiting to find it. They, my mom said we're not having a family and when we're living on my my mother-in-law's porch I mean there was a housing shortage in post-world war two so there that's why you know that's why I was you know had really old parents I mean my mom was 42 when I was when I was born so I've got this connection directly back to that generation where I understand that what this country was all about and and we need that kind of leadership today more than ever thank you governor yes thank you very much uh, we deeply appreciate you coming here today Ernesto, Mike, Amanda, thank you for having me. And again, congratulations to you on all the great success here at Yankee. Thank you. Thank you.